Welcome to Our Connected World, a podcast series from TE Connectivity featuring straight talk for engineers about today's technology trends and the technical challenges in driving innovations crucial to making the world safer, sustainable, productive, and connected. Hello and welcome to our Connected World podcast brought to you by TE Connectivity. I'm your host, Michelle Dawn Mooney, and today we are joined by Phil Gilchrist, who is the CTO and Segment VP of Communication Solutions for TE. Phil, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Before we go into the topic at hand, which we are going to talk about some really interesting things today, let's talk about your role and a little bit of a background bio, if we can, so people can learn a little bit more about the person they're about to hear from. So I'm Phil Gilchrist, as I mentioned, I, I hail from Glasgow, Scotland, and I've been at TE for about 12 years. And in, that, in those 12 years, I've had many roles in, in different BUs, and right now I lead our communication solutions group, it's, uh, engineering teams focused on new technology, um, people, and, of course, process. Wonderful. So, Phil, in your TE.com article titled The Promise of Advanced Materials, you discuss new types of materials, such as mechanobactericidal surfaces and biomass-derived ingredients, such as bioplastic monomers from Shrilk. So what is driving the need to develop these kinds of advanced materials? Well, the truth is we live in a material world. The amount of material you know, that, that's being consumed by humanity has surpassed 100 million tons a year. Think, think about this. Everything that we use in the world is made of something. In, in TE alone, last year we made some something like 147 billion things, representing some 300,000 product lines. And all of that's made of material. You know, I, in fact, I recently read that overall employment of chemists and material scientists is projected to grow by 6% from 21 to kind of um, 31. So material science might you know just be the most important technology of the next decade now, there are several factors driving this change some are driven by our customers some are driven by new you know technical capabilities and some are driven by new science and the increasing ability of the engineer uh, you know our increasing ability to engineer very small things so let me kind of talk about some of those drivers so from the customer side i think the drivers include the need for sustainable materials, materials that have less weight, materials that have higher performance characteristics within a smaller physical space, materials that need to operate at extreme temperatures in harsh environments, materials that need uh, to isolate electrical signals flowing through an application you know, uh, architecture, just a thousand different parameters. From some of the technical drivers, you know, Really, there's been uh, an exponential exponential growth in our knowledge of material design uh, all the way down to the nano and quantum levels. I think the ability to see and manipulate atomic structures of exotic materials like shrilk, which for the audience is a, a fully degradable bioplastic made from a material called titicin, which is found in shrimp cells, strangely enough. The ability to utilize AI as a design aid to help material scientists arrive at the right permutations of a, of a polymer, you know, these are all drivers, you know, very significant ones. But let me just say also that AI is a particularly important new development. It's used 
uh, you know, it used to be that developing new materials was a, a really painful process of trial and error as the right permutation of chemistry that met the requirements was discovered. In the pre-AI days, this meant hundreds of uh, formula variants being tweaked and tested as the best formula, you know, was really discovered. And that could take years, and I mean literally years. AI allows the whole discovery process, you know, the search for the most promising candidate formulations really to be executed in the digital space at a much faster pace and, and rate. So um, in, in, a, in the AI scenario, given the desired um, design requirements, the AI, model, the AI model would search through a vast amount of possibilities and spit out formula permutations that are most likely to hit the mark. You still need to physically test them, of course, but perhaps you need to test a fewer of them, and the few that you test are more likely to be right. You know, practically speaking, this could reduce the development time dramatically, say by even fifty percent. That's another way of saying you can double your material development capacity uh, by a hundred percent, and all of that is, you know, suddenly an expansion in the world's capacity for new formers. And that's just been increasing dramatically over the years. And clearly the need for materials is increasing dramatically as well. So when it comes to developing these new materials, is sustainability an important concern? And if so, why? Well, you know, it's a great question. I mean, sustainability is something the whole world is embracing with all the, you know, kind of zeal and passion of a kind of new convert, the, the general public, our customers, perhaps at different speeds and degrees are beginning to demand products that support a fully sustainable product life cycle. And can we do too, at TE Connectivity, we have a consistent and I think transparent record of the environmental, social, governance reporting. And we published that for over a decade. And you can read that online in one of our corporate responsibility reports. But basically everyone at TE lives in a world too. We have kids, we have grandkids, and we have a desire to leave the world in a better shape than we found it as well. Yes, we make millions of things a year that the world needs and will continue to need. And that does create greenhouse gases in the process of making them. But we believe in a world where those things can be made sustainably. The world regulatory bodies are also beginning to play a big role in driving sustainable uh, alternatives driven by the public demanding a more sustainable world. I think it's fair to say that Europe is driving a very focused, some would say aggressive uh, environmental re regulation uh, policy that's beginning to propagate throughout the world. And that will force all supply chains to eventually adapt. We're part of the supply chain. So I think about the future like this. I mean, you know, you're traditionally, Product design has been about finding an optimal solution between really three fundamental, three fundamental constraints, performance, manufacturability, and cost. To those three fundamental constraints, at TE, we're adding a fourth one, sustainability. New fundamental design constraints don't happen that often, so that's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And much needed. And as you said, we really are seeing that trend in a good way, go towards that side of, of being more cognizant of the need for sustainability. So how different is the function of the mechanobactericidal surfaces? How do these differ from conventional materials? Well, in conventional products, surface material is really the same material 
as one nanometer or one millimeter or one meter below the surface. The material operates the same if you have a gram of it or a kilogram of it. Products with antibacterial surfaces or surfaces that change color based on some stimulus like an ambient gas or excessive heat are examples of new biomaterials where the surface or materials has an active chemical design that can be programmed to do different things from the bulk of the material based on some stimulus. And that's an extremely interesting development and offers a new design dimension to exploit. For example, you can imagine antibacterial plastic tubing around you know, shopping cart handles that continually you know, sanitizes the handling surfaces or robust cables that crack or heal from, um, you know, with some scratch or whatever. Filling in the gaps themselves when the crack exposes certain catalysts to the air. Truly, the opportunities, I think, really are endless. You know, I'd like to say that, you know, you know nature has a patent portfolio as evolution has discovered countless applications of smart surfaces and smart materials. To a very large extent, we just need to discover what nature's already found and adapt and adopt it. Very interesting. What advantages can be gained from using biomass polymers over other materials? Well, most conventional polymers used in this world are created from non-renewable petroleum in a very high temperature, and by that I mean energy-intensive process. Petroleum is, as we know, is a non-renewable if you don't have millions of years to weigh around, and that creates that also creates a lot of greenhouse gases. Biomass polymers are derived from recurring plants like forms of sugar or castor oils. Um, there are two significant advantages of bio-based plastic products compared to their conventional versions. A, they save the fossil fuels I just referred to by using biomass, which regenerates and provides the unique potential of carbon neutrality uh, and significantly reduces greenhouse gases. I would say, though, we're at the beginning of the biomass journey. In spite of strong demand, biomass feedstock, the stuff which these polymers are made from in the end, represents about 1% of the global plastics market. It is gaining in popularity, but it's still quite marginal, and it's fair to say that there are significant you know, challenges and, uh, and disadvantages. You know, a couple of these are cost and the danger of competing with the food chain. Competing with the food chain for sugar, for example, is not what we want to do uh, due to the obvious moral and I think ethical issues. So we want to source biomass feedstock that humans don't compete for. A lot of exciting things on the horizon with regard to what we're hearing about these new materials. But let me ask you this. Will these new types of materials eventually replace the tried and true materials used in connectivity products, especially when you think of technologies designed for highly regulated industries such as aerospace, automotive, and medical? Are we going to see kind of a trend of those those old materials kind of being pushed out? Yeah, I think we will. I think over time, you know, the validity and the legitimate use of these alternative materials will be proven. And it is a case in the materials world of show me, prove it to me, and, and verify it. So that process is ongoing. That will take a number of years. But there's no real reason that you know, various applications, uh, application spaces would not adopt these. In fact, you know, if we could, if we could verify um, and qualify these these products, given their 
and environmental sustainable benefits, you know, we don't see really any issue of 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 the industry rejecting that as a as as a proposition. We live in what I like to refer to as a very fast food society. We want it. We want it now. <laughs> so. Can these new materials help address the increased expectation for mass customization and rapid on-demand production? So this is a great question and really shows the scope of the, the change of foot in the material space. So leaving aside the drivers I just mentioned, my passion, I think TE's passion for all of the above, there's even more to talk about because fundamental material change is beginning to happen that will enable new ways to manufacture. For example, we've been melting plastic resin beads in the, into a high temperature liquid form, injecting them at high pressure into steel molds, then converting that liquid back to some form of solid for decades. And you can see that from everything from Legos to connectors to car bodies, injection molding has dominated the manufacturing of plastic parts. And that's changing. 3D printing, the ability to build up complex uh, parts by depositing a very thin layer of plastic on another layer of thin plastic. That's perhaps not new to the world, um, but, and I guess we've all seen different examples of it, and you can buy home 3D printers for hundreds of dollars these days. And everyone has probably seen, um, seen it in some form from, a, from a, you know, a green plastic copyright infringing Shrek or Disney character. But until recently, 3D printing didn't have the capabilities of injection molded materials for industrial products like ours. Characteristics of things like electrical isolation or resistance to fire, among other things. But the industrial printable materials Rubicon really has been crossed. And there are new materials becoming available that are the, uh, that have the industrial strength that we require. These materials uh, are being designed for 3D printing manufacturing, and they will perform equivalently or even better than traditional injection molded parts. So the big question here is, why do we care? Okay, you got this way, you got that way of making stuff. Why do we care? Why should our customers care? Well, three media reasons, speed, speed, and speed. This is the first critical value proposition that we need to grasp. The difference is that 3D printed parts can be printed with one hour of the design being completed. Whereas in an injection mold uh, part, we need to make the steel mold and that takes two to three months. It's very expensive and requires a lot of iterations to get it right. So speed, speed, speed really is a game changer. And the second critical value proposition is ability to make new designs that really replicate nature's uh, design lessons of curves and voids instead of a highly geometric, industrial, right-angled components we're all used to seeing. Just remember, there are no right angles in nature. Uh, nature, again, nature has a patent portfolio, and we just need to discover it. This creates, or will create, in my mind, uh, a new design language, a new industrial design language that will allow us to do different things and really create you know, different visions. Think about this by analogy. Think about what one could build with only wood and stone, and then think about what you can build with modern alloys and carbon fibers. To visualize this, think about the skyline of a medieval European town against that of modern London or Tokyo or New York or Shanghai or Bangalore. The material capabilities really expand one's design capability and they change what can be built and imagined. And I think that's revolutionary. 
What do engineers need to consider when using a new material, particularly when developing complex technological architectures such as those in a data center? So fundamentally, an engineer needs to understand what the design constraints are for any product and any application. In data center applications, well, they require high data performance operating at 100 gig to 200 gig speeds. That creates a lot of heat and electrical interference and the material needs to handle uh, that in an ever shrinking physical space. So all of those things have to be addressed simultaneously. This application space, among others like automotive in defense, is why we've launched the Performance Materials BU to focus on the components of components like O-ring or gaskets in general. These products may seem uh, you know, you know, modest, but, but they're heavily impacted by the capabilities of, of material and emission critical components. If they fail, the whole system fails. And that may seem hyperbolic, but just remember that in uh, 1986, the Space Challenger shuttle blew up because of the metal property, the material properties of an O-ring in the right rocket booster. Data centers are of course less explosive venues, but a failure in these critical components of components could lead to heat flows to be mismanaged and that causes the electronics to fail and that's a big deal because then the system shuts down. So we're leveraging our deep knowledge of the application spaces we play in with our knowledge of product-based material science and we're hoping to create um, something that solves our customers' problems better. Yeah, and of course that's the ultimate goal to make better materials so that you can have better products. Let's talk about what impact manufacturers may see by using these new materials? Well, I think there are three in short. The first one is, as was mentioned, can, can greater sustainability in terms of lower greenhouse gases, very critical, will dominate all of that 100 billion tons I referred to earlier. Faster speed from design to product when we're thinking of 3D printing. And, you know, as I mentioned, solving application problems better, reduction of weight and space, thermal management, electrical management, materials that allow new designs that solve, uh, that better solve uh, problems. Let's talk about the flip side and a few challenges, because there are always challenges when you're going to adopt newer ways of working with new materials. So what barriers must manufacturers address before they can even begin using a new material? So fundamentally, we need to design and thoroughly validate these materials. And that takes a lot of time. They need to perform as required. They need to be manufacturable and they need to be at the right cost. So that's a long process of maybe a year or two to get through the internal qualification of that product. Let's talk about the bottom line how economically realistic is it for manufacturers to adopt new materials within their production process? It's very, we do it all the time. Uh, we introduce new materials, you know, I wouldn't say daily, but, but often. And to give you some benchmark, currently TE uses about 4,000 different types of polymers. Again, it all comes back to good material science and we accelerate, I think we accelerate at that and good engineering practices. And this is something we're known for. Customers trust our engineering. Those 247 billion things that we make a year, I think testify to that. 
We're talking about, of course, being on the cutting edge and really getting the newest and the best materials out there. How far can the industry reasonably expect to push the limits of materials innovation? I don't think there's much limit. I mean, our, our again, scientific and engineering knowledge and capabilities are expanding kind of dramatically. And I think, you know, the ability to respond to any any set of requirements is is so far without much limit. So I'm very optimistic that we can push the innovation curve as far as it needs to go. So what is being done today to find new uses for these materials, both in new applications and in resolving common connectivity challenges in existing technologies? Well, in TE, we're one of the only companies in our space that I'm aware of that has a dedicated uh, team of material science uh, scientists and experts. Um, we also have material expertise in our BUs, of course. So we're investing in material science as a, as a core strength of our company. Um, these teams have aggressive goals that are focused on new polymer design that create, you know, some form of competitive edge, whichever market application, you know, that we're talking about or addressing. We're also investing in the AI systems and databases that will improve our productivity, as I mentioned earlier. The good news, by the way, is that, we're all, that we already have real user cases, uh, uh, you know, where we've used AI and that has genuinely helped speed up our development process and find different formulations for different uh, interesting niches, which in the end make a better product and, uh, and again, solves our, our customers' problems better. So obviously we want these new materials. We want them to be the best. We want them as quickly as possible, but there's such a high level of checks and balances needed when you have these new materials come onto the market. So what must be addressed to ensure new materials can meet heat dissipation and EMI shielding requirements without compromising performance for faster and higher rates of power, signal, and data transmission? Our new performance materials BU team is focused on finding the right composition of polymers and fillers that best solves whatever we're trying to achieve. The balance of a polymer's ingredients really determines how it performs. So um, given there are so many permutations of a polymer formula, more permutations than there are atoms in the universe, in fact, the team's experience is invaluable in figuring out what that right balance is. So it goes back to one of my earlier uh, answers or kind of statements on the need to fully test and fully validate the material in the lab setting, and then, then also to produce that in a product setting and validate and qualify that as well. What can be sure at the end of this process is that all any new material um, would be fully validated and any product that comes from it would be fully validated. What is TE doing to help manufacturers and engineers understand the types of alternative materials available for use in their design? First and foremost, we need to we need to investigate, you know, the science, uh, which, as I mentioned, our investment in material in our material group is aimed to do. And then we've got to prove it to ourselves by applying all the application and validation I mentioned previously. Based on that, we'll work with our supply chain to ensure that we have real volume capability and, our cust uh, you know, and with our customers to ensure that technical basis for a position um, is validated through data. So 
in nearly everything we do, everything is backed up by good engineering, good science, validated, clear data. What distinguishes TE's approach to partnering with OEMs when it comes to developing and then applying new materials for customized solutions designed to address key trends, shaping technology that we're seeing today, such as miniaturization and electrification? Well, you know, the way I would answer that is to say our level of investment in material science, uh, which is really an investment in very smart PhDs and also non-PhD scientists. Uh, as I've said, uh, as far as I'm aware, we're the only company in our space with a dedicated materials team. And this team works with the BU teams that have the detailed application knowledge necessary to ensure that the right problems are being focused on. Our active embracing of AI as a tool to augment the number of polymers that can be developed and the increasing speed connected with that is you know, one of our competitive advantages. I think launching up a firm performance materials BU is a place to expand into the components of components um, has been very critical as well. And TE really is front and center when it comes to this space of what we're talking about with new materials here. So does TE view new materials as a subcomponent or a distinct component with its portfolio? Well, I think there's two answers here. You know, as noted, uh, TE makes some 247 billion components a year, all of our material of some kind. So these new materials are very relevant to that portfolio. Um, but, you know, our performance material BU is creating the components of those components like thermal pads, greases and gels and so on that we will use in our own product sets, but we're also selling externally. So in that sense, um, our investment in the performance material BU is an expansion of our portfolio compared to a few years ago. So let's look to the future, because this is always exciting, especially when you're talking about technology, because it is ever changing. Where do you see materials research going over the next five years? And what might the next phase of innovation in materials look like? You know, I think there is so much value-based cre creativity being created in, the, in, in smart materials. So many advancements in our understanding of the underlying, you know, physics and biology and the engineering of materials just so much science is being invested in that you know, I, I really do see a continued expansion and acceleration of the rate of change in, in materials. You know, couple all that with the fact that we really do live in a material world and it's made of real things and they need to produce, be produced somehow. So based on that, I think the future is very exciting. And if you're looking for an analog, it feels like materials are at that same inflection point, similar to the telecoms world of 25 years ago, as it transitioned from, from a wireline pay-by-the-minute world to a mobile cellular world with free voice over internet. I think everything is going to change. Very exciting. And I'm sorry, I can't help but think of Madonna's material world as we're wrapping up this conversation, because we do live in a material world. I, th I thought it was a material girl, wasn't it? Uh, living in material, yeah, we're living in a material world, and I'm a material girl. Oh, well, you know the song yeah. better than I do. I, mean, yeah. I, I, I guess the title is a material girl, but even then, she was living in a material world. 
Phil Gilchrist is the CTO and Segment VP of Communication Solutions for TE. Phil, thank you so much for joining me today. Great conversation and really excited to see what the future holds and where those new materials and the material world takes us. And want to thank our listeners for tuning into our Connected World podcast brought to you by TE Connectivity. Once again, I'm your host, Michelle Dawn Mooney. And for more information on TE, you can go to te.com. We hope to see you soon. Thank you for tuning into our conversation. You can learn more about the solutions we discussed today by visiting te.com, where you can connect with our engineer support teams and sign up for Circuit, our monthly trends newsletter featuring a selection of articles on tech innovation written by engineers for engineers. To find out more, follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts, as well as LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, think big, move fast, and make every connection count.